Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll be looking just at verse uh, three verses, one of the shorter passages we'll consider in this series in Nehemiah. Looking at verses 9 through 12. Maybe you're aware of this already, but Americans have never been unhappier. A survey conducted in May of 2020 found that just 14% of American adults considered themselves very happy. This survey has been conducted since 1972. So in the past 50 years, the percentage of people that have suggested that they were very happy has never been below 29%. So it was cut in half in a very short time frame. A number of reasons that we could speculate as to why that is. Uh, but we all experience seasons of unhappiness. Right? Stress can creep into our lives slowly or sometimes it broadsides us. Right? We never want to minimize the challenges that we or others face. And this passage that we'll be looking at does not suggest a, a shallow response to our mourning or to our challenges. We cannot simply place a, a happy mask on our face and expect the pain to disappear. Regardless of your present state, this is clearly a, a critical time in our world and in our nation to understand how we can increase the peace and joy that we and our neighbors experience in this life. Another survey showed that those who were actively religious were 44% more likely to rate themselves very happy. So, in, in other words, you can have a good chance of increasing your joy simply by attending church more regularly. All right, so I'm preaching to the choir this morning. And the people in our passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, they have apparently been standing some five to six hours as Ezra had, has read to them from various passages in the Pentateuch or maybe just one particular book, likely Deuteronomy. But as he's read to them the book of the law of Moses for five to six hours, it seems that they have remained standing during this. And so last week, we considered the priority, the posture, and the purpose of preaching. And so if you missed it, you should give it a listen, though I can't do anything about the happiness that you already forfeited by not being here last week. It will help you to understand this passage, because it's really a part two following that first section of the chapter. So the focus this week is on how we, or how the people respond to the preaching. That's how we should respond anytime we sit under the preaching of God's word. And interestingly enough, you'll see that this passage, the first response is not one of joy. It's not one of happiness. It's sorrow. The law of God brought everyone under the conviction of their past and probably present rebellion against God. And ironically, it's that very reaction that prepared them then to experience true joy and lasting peace. And so let's ask the Lord that we might have that same kind of reaction to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your revelation. 
Lord, that you have given us the ability to comprehend and understand your salvation that's given to us in your Son. And we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear this truth this morning, that you would bring conviction where that is needed and appropriate. And we pray that we might also be given the comfort of the gospel, that as we leave, we might be rejoicing and celebrating along with one another in your goodness to us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, you'll see the, the first point is worship involves mourning. Worship involves mourning. Remember, this is the, the first day, if you look back at verse 2 of chapter 8. It says that Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. So he has stood before them reading from the book of, of the law of Moses, on the first day, this is the first day of the seventh month, which is beginning the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, it's a, a, a festival that really kicked off an important season of celebration in the Jewish calendar. It was a day of solemn rest, accompanied with the blast of trumpets, obvious from the name, right? As well as food offerings. And as the people gathered together and remembered God's work in the past, you can read about this festival in Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. It was followed, also Leviticus 23 teaches us, uh, it was followed by the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. And you'll see later on the Feast of Booths is celebrated in Nehemiah 8, verses 13 through the end. So these feasts are, are they're gathering together now as a people to celebrate this important month in the calendar. And we know that every seven years, according to Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 through 13, that they, they would have been instructed to, give, uh, to have an extensive time where they would sit under the reading of the law. And Ezra has already done that previous, in, in the previous section we looked at last week. So this would make sense, right, that this is a sabbatical year. If this is true, then this is a sabbatical year a year of release. That implies that farmers would have taken a year off to give their land rest 
Exodus 23 says that. Uh, they would have forgiven debts, according to Deuteronomy 15. Also in Deuteronomy 15, it says that Hebrew slaves would have been set free on this year. So this is a significant time of celebration for the people. As they gather together, they're, they're excited about all that is about to take place, that is about to be celebrated and acknowledged this month. And so it makes sense, in fact, that in chapter 5, Nehemiah has rebuked them for their abuses against uh, you know, the debts that they've required from their own kinsmen, and even to the point of enslaving one another. Right? So this, is, this all makes sense for this passage. Why would God command them to follow such an elaborate religious calendar? Well, festivals were a time of holy celebration. They learned about God's preservation of their ancestors. Children would learn about their heritage in a fun and an engaging atmosphere. Uh, imagine the Feast of Booths. They're spending a week under temporary shelter as they in, enjoy telling stories and remembering how God provided and cared for them while they were in the wilderness. And so you'd have the same thing. This experience would have ingrained these events and the laws that accompanied those events in their minds. It was a way of passing on their faith, of nurturing their children under the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so last week, we emphasized the importance of children attending the worship service, of them being a part with their families of the worship service and experiencing worship alongside one another. We believe this is a, a critical aspect of the way we nurture them in the instruction of the Lord. And so I encourage you, I provided a, a bulletin that we'll give to visitors, uh, children in worship. It'll be in our, our welcome packet. But I included one with your bulletin today for you to read it on your own. Um, it's important, right, that they're in the worship service. But I also think it's important that they continue to learn in the other aspects of our gathering, right? So even as we enjoy fellowship after the service, and kids should have fun. It should be a relaxing atmosphere. There obviously has to be some order. We don't want people you know, playing kickball in the fellowship hall while we're trying to drink our coffee. Um, but right, we can stop a, a food fight from breaking out later today at the children's table without hovering over them and picking up every stray crumb that falls to the floor. It should be an engaging and enjoyable atmosphere. And in fact, we should be talking to our children about the things of the Lord. We should be asking them how God has spoken to them this past year, how he has provided for them, telling them stories about our own history, how God has provided for us, what we look forward to next year or this year. So we want to engage with our families in this time. We want our fellowship to be intentional. Kids, if you're at a table that's just with kids, be intentional about that time with one another. How has God sustained your faith? How has he sanctified you this past year? What are you looking forward to in 2022? Now, all of this sets up the dilemma that Ezra and Nehemiah faced at this point. Because while everyone was preparing for this important festival season, the preaching of the law has left them in tears. The party is about to begin, but everyone's weeping. 
Now, who wants to go to that party? I'll stay out. No thanks. And these aren't tears of joy. They're tears of conviction. So the righteousness of the holy of a holy God has been revealed to them as Ezra preached from the law. Again, five to six hours. It was as if he held up a mirror that exposed all of their filthiness, all of their rebellion and their empty religiosity. And so it was entirely appropriate for them to respond with a deep sense of conviction. When the Spirit is at work through the preaching of his word, this kind of response is inevitable. Not, not every time, but often. We're going to weep at what God is doing. Ezra, Nehemiah, the Levites, they now find themselves comforting the people, right? Calming them down so that they could indeed enjoy the celebration that God had intended for them. They were responding as guilty people should. But it was important that they not stay in that emotional state. They're not just to stay in that weeping and torment of soul, that anguish of spirit. No, they couldn't, they couldn't earn God's forgiveness by the amount of tears they would cry. They must trust in the assurance of pardon that God provides for those who truly repent. So the first thing I want us to consider from this passage is, is that we should repent of any emotional indifference to God's word. All right, where, we would, where we would open it with such flippancy that we, we don't expect anything. We're not moved. We're not convinced. We're not convicted. Have you forgotten the God who created you to glorify and enjoy him? Have you forgotten that he's revealed his will on every page of scripture? Are you reading it daily? Do you weep often as you do so? I pray that this passage would convict you this morning. Even as the law of Moses convicted those Israelites who stood at the water gate some 2,500 years ago. The same God is at work this morning. And Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would continue to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment in John 16, 8. And as we read earlier from Acts 2, 37, it was how the people responded as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. What did it say? They were cut to the heart. It was appropriate for them to be cut to the heart. He wasn't holding back from them. And so they were cut, and then they sought the instruction of the apostles. What should we do? So this ought to be your prayer. Every time you sit under the preaching of God's word, every time you read it with your family, every time you read it on your own, pray for the Spirit to bring fresh conviction of sin because it's a sign that your heart is still shaped and warmed by the heat of God's word, that it is powerful, and that it is at work by his Spirit. Joined with your faith. 
And so when we read it with indifference, we are not reading it with any expectation of his spirit to move. So God doesn't abandon his people in their conviction, but he offers the swift comfort of the gospel. And that's what we see right in, in this passage. The, that's the root cause of the joy that you should always experience in worship. Worship involves joy. That's your next point from verses 10 and 11. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat Drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Right, the spiritual leaders are now all united. They're unified in bringing comfort and encouraging the people to celebrate the festival with joy. Ezra tells them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. The fat was the choice portions of the offering. Take the choicest portions of the offering, put them on your plate, and enjoy them. And drink sweet wine that's reserved for special occasions. Ezra's telling them to enjoy the feast. Now, they'll return to some sober reflection and confession of sin in chapter 9. But this was a day for joy, a day for rejoicing. And so this emotional transition is precisely what God promised would happen with the coming of the new covenant. Those who mourn would experience joy. Jeremiah 31, 13, God promises, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Jesus taught this in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And no one was, was left without a plate or a cup. As they would join in this festival, they were encouraged to remember those who had nothing ready. Now, we don't know precisely what, it, what is meant by that, right? Whether they, were, they didn't have anything ready out of poverty, they didn't have something to offer, or they simply had neglected their responsibility to bring something to offer. But on this occasion, Portions were to be shared with those in need so that everyone had something. Right? The priests accepted the sacrifices of the people who provided enough to cover for those who had nothing. So people brought enough to provide in abundance. Right? Everyone was expected to be there. Everyone was expected to contribute. But wherever that was not possible, provision was made to accommodate everyone so that everyone could celebrate. And that is God's concern here. The priority was that everyone would recognize that this day is holy to our Lord. You find that phrase three times or something like it in verse 9, 10, and 11, that this is a holy day. In other words, it's a day that is set apart from the rest of the days. It was not an optional holiday. They couldn't simply decide to work through the day. They were required to be there, but it's also a picture of God's grace. That the, the grief and the heartache that the people were experiencing on account of their sin is now going to transition into the joy of the Lord that will be their strength. That's the joy that can cause us to persevere through any trial. 
or any tribulation that we might face. And so we might think that God's promises, right, those are delightful, but his commandments are burdensome. But scripture presents God's law as a delight. His commandments are for our good. He didn't flare his nostrils commanding his children, go and celebrate the, the, the Feast of Trumpets. He's not angrily commanding them to enjoy a festival. He's, in fact, ready to forgive and to turn their mourning into rejoicing. So for many of us, repentance, it's only associated with sort of giving a, a good apology. If we've really messed up, then our apology needs to be extravagant. But if it was minor, then our apology can be minor. And there's, there's some truth to that among humans, in fact. I think we expect that. And right? if we've offended our spouse in a serious and significant way, then she's not going to just simply respond to, yeah, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I shouldn't have said that. It's going to need to have some more substance behind it. So it's true among humans, this, this level of offense determines the level of apology. And that translates to our spiritual lives as well. There are indeed various degrees of sin. Some sins, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 83, teaches us some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And it points to several scripture references to, to show that. Some sins cause a greater level of offense to God. For instance, adultery is a heinous sin in all of its forms, but physical adultery is, it, is worse in the sight of God than adultery of the heart. Both forms are sinful, both need to be repented of, but one is worse than the other. One has graver consequences. And if a pastor commits adultery... It adds another degree of heinousness to the sin because of the level of authority and responsibility that has been placed upon him. However, all sin deserves God's wrath and curse now and for eternity. That's what the next question, the Shorter Catechism, answers. Even, even the lighter sins are significant enough to require the full wages of sin, namely death. It's not as if some, you know, you can get off a little bit easier. They all deserve eternal punishment. But where we see a difference is the remedy to our situation. And that's where things get different because humans require greater levels of sacrifice to repay the debt that our offense caused Right? If you have an affair, your spouse is going to take a longer time to reconcile, if even possible. But God is never reluctant to reconcile when we truly repent and believe in Jesus. Even if we commit the most heinous sin of all time, the grace and mercy of God is sufficient to cover it. And so just as, as regular mourning with conviction over our sin reveals a depth of sincerity to our worship so the result of joy and celebration should be routine occurrences in our worship and it reveals a recognition of the forgiveness that we've received 
Right? Paul commended, he commended himself to the Corinthians as one sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Both reactions are typical of a people in frequent communion with God. And so there's two extremes to avoid. Right? Never, the, the one extreme is to never take anything seriously. Right? Everything is a joke. Worship is for entertainment. And so you avoid mourning. Avoid sorrow and sadness. Avoid funerals. On the other extreme, only act serious and stoic. Suffer as much as possible. Fun is only a distraction. Avoid joy. Right? Those two extremes are not to characterize the Christian life. And we know people in those extremes. And I would say it's a sign that they have not spent much time in communion with God. Because if they had, they would recognize that they are criticizing emotional reactions that God encourages time and time again. So when you commune with God through his word and you live according to his will, you begin to experience the heights and the depths of human emotions that make life worth living. So seeking communion with sacred divinity through his word allows you to experience all that humanity has to offer. That combination of mourning over your sin and rejoicing over God's forgiveness then finally leads to gratitude. Right? Worship involves gratitude. This is really the, the response here in verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Because they had understanding, they didn't, didn't hesitate to obey all that was commanded. Their obedience, in part, reveals the authenticity of their repentance. And they, they would not wallow in the mire of their sin, attempting to repay the debt by the amount of tears that they shed. God's forgiveness was not delayed any longer than he had supplied the grace for them to repent. And so as soon as he enabled repentance, he was prepared with forgiveness. Instead of prolonging their mourning, they could rejoice like the prodigal son. The parable we read in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of the son who squandered his inheritance, who asked before his father died for the inheritance that he could go and spend it as he wished on a wicked lifestyle. And as he's left with nothing, and as he's starving and he's, he's eating out of a, a pig trough, he's brought to a place of humility. And he recognizes, I would be treated better as a slave in my father's house if I'd simply go back and apologize and do whatever he asks. And so he's prepared to go back as a slave. And he gets to, his father sees him as if he had been watching for him and waiting for him to come. He sees him a far way off and runs to meet his son. 
And instead of requiring the son to endure this prolonged this prolonged season of, of penance, instead he clothes him in the best robe. And he gives him a ring. And we read that he puts shoes on his feet and then he throws a celebration. He slaughters the fattened calf. He gives him everything. So these, these Israelites in this passage, they've, they've lived most of their lives indifferent to God's will by their own admission in previous chapters. So they now heard the law, and it's brought deep conviction, so deep that they've wept. And the law has wounded their pride. And while their offense was, was great, God's grace was greater than all their sin. And their willingness to celebrate shows that they understood forgiveness. So the people, they, they grasped the truth and they acted in accordance with the truth. They repented when the truth brought conviction. And they rejoiced when the truth brought comfort. That's the gratitude that should always characterize the Christian. As we read and respond to God's revelation... 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So the same gospel that saves continues to motivate us to repent and believe. And so that's the point I want to leave you with, is that preaching should routinely provoke conviction for sin, and it should always provide comfort from the gospel. Jesus Christ is the word of God personified. In, in his prologue to his gospel, John describes Christ's first coming as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in Revelation 19.13, John describes Jesus as the one who's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So to engage with the word of God is to commune with Christ. Has God captured your heart so that his will triumphs over all other desires and needs in this life? Do you delight in it more than the taste of honey? As we read in Psalm 119, verse 103. Do you meditate upon God's word in the middle of the night? Psalm 119, 147 through 148 says, is his word more valuable to you than wealth? Psalm 119, verse 14. Worship properly done will involve mourning, joy, and gratitude. And so let's pray for those reactions even now. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that your word does a work. 
in our hearts, to bring conviction of sin, to bring joy and rejoicing from the comfort of the gospel. And Lord, we want to be mindful of what you are teaching us this morning. May all of us have a fresh sense of conviction where we have wandered. May we be restored to a right standing with you and recognize that assurance of pardon that you give to those who truly repent and place their faith in Christ. That we would be restored to a right communion with you and as we enjoy the, the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ, may it strengthen our faith. May it be a means of grace where you would provide for us exactly what we need this morning. And may we be in a place that we would provide for those who did not come prepared, or that we would celebrate with them and that no one would be left outside of the celebration. That all would come. Lord, that's something that we cannot manufacture or force, but it is something that your spirit does. And so we pray that you would move in our hearts, in the hearts of all present, that you would be glorified and magnified, and that your gospel would fall fresh upon our hearts. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, hymn number 403. I chose this particular hymn, which it might be new to some of you. I think it's the first time we're singing it as a church. But this last verse says, Savior, if of Zion's city I, through grace, a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And so let us rejoice now as we sing. Glorious things of thee are spoken. <laughs> 